Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you. Can you tell we're getting ready for VBS as the stage, the platform gets bigger, although I'm told I'm not allowed out on it yet. So not until, not until VBS next month. And uh, thanks for those of you who uh, came to the work party yesterday and uh, helped in preparation as we continue to gear up for what God's going to do at our Vacation Bible School. Uh, last year, the Pew Research Center conducted a nationwide survey to measure people's perceptions about different religious groups in America. And so they surveyed people's perceptions about Jewish people, Catholics, evangelical Christians, Muslims, Mormons, atheists, and they categorized the results in a way to measure how favorable or unfavorable each religious group was perceived by people outside of each religious group. And of all the religious groups in the survey, the most unfavorable religious group were evangelical Christians. Let that sink in. Now, some people read the results of that survey as a badge of honor. Yet another example of bias against Christianity in our culture today. And undoubtedly, we do sometimes see bias against the Christian faith around us in our culture, in the news media, um, in films, on TV. Christians sometimes experience bias against their faith in their workplace or in the classroom. As followers of Jesus, how should we respond to bias against our faith when we encounter it? We're in a series through 1 Peter called Forged in the Furnace. And 1 Peter calls the people of God, calls us, elect exiles. As God's elect, we're chosen by God, we belong to God, and we belong to God's purposes. But as exiles, we have been scattered in Babylon. Just like ancient Israel lived in exile in the literal city of Babylon, as followers of Jesus, we live in our own Babylon, wherever we happen to live in the world. And elect exiles face two kind of opposite temptations as they're scattered in exile, to conform or to conquer. On the one hand, our desire to fit in to the culture around us puts enormous pressure on us to adopt Babylon's values, ideas, and practices as our own. And you will find churches that have done this. But at the other extreme, we might be tempted to try to conquer Babylon, and you'll find churches that are trying to do that. But both of these temptations to conquer or to conform lead to the same place. In the process, we ourselves become Babylon. If we conform, we lose our identity as God's people. And if we try to conquer we lose our identity as God's scattered exiles. Church history is filled with example after example of the people of God as God's elect in exile, either conforming or conquering, and in the process, becoming exile or becoming Babylon in the process. And so instead, Peter urges us to live faithfully as God's elect who are scattered in exile. 
And sometimes that means we will encounter a bias against our faith. What do we do? Now, if it makes you feel any better, this bias against the Christian faith was far worse back when Peter wrote this letter. We, we know from the writings of Roman authors at this time in Roman high society that, that rumors circulated when 1 Peter was written that the early Christians were involved in all kinds of terrible and immoral practices. Christians also refused to honor the traditional Greek and Roman gods. So whenever anything bad happened, like an epidemic or an earthquake or a drought, people blamed the Christians because the Christians were the ones who didn't honor the Roman gods who were associated with preventing epidemics, earthquakes, and droughts. Rumors spread that the early Christians were cannibals because they ate the bread and drank from the cup of communion. A later Roman author named Marcellinus would write, no wild beasts are so deadly to humans as most Christians are to each other. Christians were constantly slandered in Roman culture as hateful, immoral, and a danger to the stability of society. And when you consider the fact that the Christians comprised just about two-tenths of one percent of the population in Roman society, this, this bias against the Christian faith put early Christians in a very precarious situation. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle is going to help us find some strategies for how to respond to bias against our faith when we experience it. But I need to warn you in advance that what Peter says here is very different than what some politicians and media personalities are saying about how to respond to bias against the Christian faith. You won't hear Peter say anything about out outrage, protests, boycotts, making a fiery post on social media. Instead, he calls us to deeper ways of following Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you, without further ado, if you're able, would you stand as we hear from God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 
For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were all like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Until Jesus comes again at the end of history, Babylon is always going to act like Babylon and be in conflict with the kingdom of God. The the famous African theologian Augustine called this the conflict between the city of God and the city of man. Whether Christians live in Glendora or Guatemala, San Dimas or Saudi Arabia, Covina or Cameroon, Laverne or Luxembourg, Babylon is going to act like Babylon. What's an exile to do? Peter gives us four strategies in these verses. And the first is abstinence from scandalous behavior. Abstinence from scandalous behavior. You don't want people to say bad things about you. Don't do bad things. In verse 11, just Peter once again calls us foreigners and exiles, just in case we missed it the first two times he said it in chapter 1. And as exiles who are scattered in our own Babylon, Peter urges us to abstain from giving in to sinful desires. Now, Karen Jobes, a Bible scholar in her commentary on 1 Peter, points out that a sinful desire here is any impulse that will lead us into sin if we don't actively resist it. We all have impulses that will run wild if we don't work to curb those impulses. And Peter is telling us to actively work on curbing those impulses. Every week, it seems like I hear about another church or ministry scandal. And these scandals usually relate to impulses related to money, sex, and power. Yet another ministry caught grifting God's people for money. Yet another church covering up sexual abuse. Yet another church leader misusing their power to bully, manipulate, or control people. When God's people, and especially leaders, engage in scandalous behavior, it feeds bias against Christians in our culture. And because of this, sometimes Christians are tempted to cover up or minimize that kind of scandalous behavior. A couple of years ago, a famous Christian leader died, and shortly after he died, multiple instances of sexual misconduct surfaced. And a couple of my friends said, look how much good he did. Why are they tarnishing his reputation now? And there was a time in my life I might have thought that too. 
But at this stage in my life, my first thought was, what about all of his victims? Whenever there's a scandal, we're, we're, we're tempted to say, oh, it's not really as bad as they're making it out to be, or, or people are just bringing it up because they hate Jesus, or, or at least we're not as bad as those people over there. But these kinds of defensive reactions merely throw fuel in the fire of anti-Christian bias, making excuses, sweeping things under the rug, minimizing scandalous behavior or abuse. They take bad situations and make them even worse. Peter urges us to avoid this stuff in the first place. They wage war against our soul. A second strategy Peter gives us is pursuit of shared values. Pursuit of shared values. We see this in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God the day he visits us. And again in verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, pagans in verse 12, it simply refers to all the people who weren't Christians living in the Roman Empire, which spanned from Europe into the Middle East and Africa at that time. And the word translated good, the Greek word in verse 12 for good, refers to anything that is morally right. But this particular word for good also implies something that's beautiful, appealing, attractive. What's good will also be beautiful. See, Peter assumes that people living in Babylon will appreciate the beauty of what's good when they see it. When God's exiles do good, slanderers are silenced, and people of Babylon glorify God. That's why doing good in Babylon is God's will for us. It's what God wants us to do. See, we often picture the differences between the values of God's kingdom and the values of Babylon this way. <clears throat> we imagine that the values of God's kingdom um, are completely and utterly separate from the values of Babylon. We imagine that faithfulness to the values of the kingdom of God will mean a complete and total separation from the values of Babylon. We envision as an either-or proposition. But the Apostle Peter pictures it differently than this. Yes, God's kingdom contains values and ideas that are opposed to Babylon's. We are exiles, after all. And there's also overlap shared values, points of contact where the values of the kingdom of God intersect and overlap with the values of Babylon. Karen Jobes, again in her commentary, says, Peter expects that his readers can live in a way that will be recognized as good even by the standards of unbelieving pagans. There is a Christian theologian named Miroslav Wolf who says that Peter here presupposes overlap between Christian values and non-Christian values. You see, the Bible teaches that God's common grace is at work everywhere in the world. 
And because of God's common grace, every Babylon, no matter where it is, will have at least some values that overlap with the values of God's kingdom. Now, which values those are will vary from place to place, culture to culture, nation to nation. But they're always present as a testimony of God's common grace at work throughout the world. So yes, Christians should embrace the values of God's kingdom and not compromise them. And and yes, we should avoid values that conflict with God's kingdom. But Peter is urging us to find and then to emphasize the values that we find in the overlap. To find common ground. To look for common good. And to make sure as followers of Jesus, we excel in that overlap. Because when we find common ground, the people of Babylon will take notice. By doing good in that overlap, we make the Christian faith beautiful to those outside the faith. So beautiful, it can silence those who slander and even bring people to Jesus. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 5 when he said to let our light shine before others so that they might see our good works and glorify God. Doing good silences anti-Christian bias. Now, some people might say that our culture is too far gone to find any shared values. But people who say that don't know very much about what ancient Roman culture was like when Peter wrote these words. See, back then, when when 1 Peter was written, Roman culture was a moral mess. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Even though the average life expectancy in the ancient Roman Empire was about 30 years old back then, it was common for people to have been married six or seven times in their lifetime. In ancient Roman society, Because it was patriarchal, there was no expectation that husbands would be faithful to their wives. So cheating, especially by husbands, was rampant, brazen, and out in the open. In fact, um, there were religious temples in most cities devoted to prostitution. Because Roman culture, again, was patriarchal, wives and children were often subject to terrible abuse. Unwanted children were frequently abandoned in the woods and left to die. Shortly before Peter wrote this letter, the Roman emperor Nero, who was the emperor at this time, divorced his wife, Statilia, so he could marry a young teenage boy named Sporus. And Nero insisted that the entire Roman Senate come to the wedding. Violence and corruption were rampant in ancient Roman society. One-third of the people in ancient Roman society were slaves because they couldn't repay their debts. The Roman Empire at this time was worse than anything we've experienced or seen in our lifetimes here in the U.S. And yet Peter urges the early Christians to look for and to find shared values. And if they can do it, so can we. This is a Christian response to bias against the faith. A third strategy that Peter gives is respect for social order. Respect for social order. Uh, Roman society deeply valued law and order. Um, Any new religious group that appeared to threaten that social order was viewed as dangerous. 
So in verses 13 through 16, Peter urges Christians to respect the social order of whatever Babylon they happen to live in. The Bible commands us here to submit ourselves for the sake of Jesus to every human authority. Every human authority. Not just the ones we like or the ones we agree with or the ones we vote for. For Peter's readers, these authorities would have included the Roman emperor, their governors, their tax collectors, law enforcement, and so on. And Peter explicitly mentions the emperor twice, once in verse 13 and again in verse 17, because if anyone would have been difficult for the early Christians to honor and to submit themselves to, it was the Roman emperor Nero. But honoring Nero didn't mean agreeing with him or pretending that he was a good and upstanding guy. It meant respecting his position as emperor, praying for him, obeying his laws. Honoring Nero meant refraining from saying or doing anything that could be construed as a threat to the social stability of Roman society. Verse 17 sums it up. Show proper respect to everyone. Give every relationship its proper due. But then in verses 18 through 21, Peter applies this directly to Christians who are slaves. Back then, that was about a third of the population. And it's hard to imagine anyone being more powerless in a society than a slave. Now, remember, 1 Peter was written more than 1,500 years before anyone even considered the possibility that maybe slavery was wrong and society should get rid of it. And although the seeds for abolishing slavery, I believe, are present in the Bible, it would take centuries for those seeds to sprout and to grow into the abolitionist movement. Even as we observed Juneteenth this last Monday, we remember that even here in the U.S., after the Emancipation Proclamation was given, it took two and a half years for some slaves to be released. So in ancient Roman society, there was a clear hierarchy about how society should be structured. Slaves with masters, husbands with wives, fathers with children, and we'll talk more about that next week. But I want you to notice in this section that Peter presents Christian slaves as a paradigm for all followers of Jesus. In verse 16, he says that all Christians are called to live as slaves of God. And what does Peter say slaves are called to do? To endure suffering, even at the hands of unjust people. Now, I'm sure Peter would also say that if a slave found a pathway into freedom, they should take it. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 7 explicitly. But pathways out of slavery were few and far between in ancient Roman society. And the penalty for runaway slaves was death. The vast majority of slaves would never find freedom in this life. They were trapped. And Peter here is trying to help Christian slaves find a way to live out their faith in an unjust institution that would likely never change within their lifetime. To live as faithfully to Jesus as they can in a bad situation. We silence anti-Christian bias by respecting the social order around us. Finally, the fourth and final strategy Peter gives us here is imitation of Christ's way of life. Imitation of the life of Jesus. 
While he's talking about slavery, Peter points to Jesus as an example of a slave who suffered unjustly. Jesus gave us an example for us as his disciples to follow. In fact, in verse 21, the Greek word for example, it was sometimes used to describe children who would learn to write by tracing the letters of their teacher. A teacher would write out the letters of the alphabet on papyrus or paper, and then the students would practice tracing over the teacher's letters over and over again until they memorized all the letters. Jesus has written out a way of life for us. And we as his students are to trace our lives over his to learn how to live as he did. In verses 22 through 25, Peter quotes several verses from the Old Testament book of Isaiah to remind us of this way of life. At Jesus' trial, even though he was innocent, he didn't lie, he didn't retaliate, he didn't make threats. Instead, he trusted his life to God as the just judge. He knew that God would vindicate him. And as he was being crucified, he took our sins upon himself, being wounded so we could receive the healing of salvation. Jesus' example of suffering as a servant is an example for us to trace our lives over. We want to silence bias against the faith. It means walking in the steps of Jesus, following his path without retaliating, without threats. And some people might view that as weak, but then they would have to view Jesus as weak. This is actually an active life of faith as we boldly and courageously entrust our lives to God as the one who will judge us in the end. This is how Peter urges us to respond to bias against our faith. Not by conforming to Babylon, not by trying to conquer Babylon, but abstinence from scandalous behavior, pursuit of shared values, respect for social order, and most of all, imitation of the way of Jesus. You won't hear a lot of politicians or media personalities talk about these things. But this is what the Bible calls God's elect scattered in exile to do. There's no doubt that there's a bias against the faith in our culture today. And this bias has only gotten worse in the last 50 years. And I'm afraid that often the church's response to this bias has only made it worse. Simmering outrage, angry outbursts, pronouncements of God's coming judgment, explosive social media posts. It only adds fuel to the fire. It even took Peter a while to see this. If you know Peter's story, the guy who wrote this letter, the very first time Jesus predicted that he was going to have to suffer and die, Peter is the one that took him aside and rebuked him. Suffering isn't part of life if you follow God. And you might remember what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 23. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't have God's concerns on your mind, but only human concerns. And then when Jesus was arrested... It was Peter who fought back. Maybe you know the story in John 18. Peter pulled out a sword and sliced off someone's ear as they were arresting Jesus, and he was trying to defend Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Peter? 
In John 18, 10 and 11, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not walk this path of suffering that God has called me to? And then as Jesus was being tried, it was Peter watching from a distance who denied he even knew Jesus three times. Why? Because he didn't want to suffer as he saw Jesus was suffering. That was young, immature Peter. In this letter, we get mature Peter, who after decades of following Jesus, has learned how to live as God's elect and exile scattered. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture. Lord, forgive us as the church in this culture for the ways that we have fallen short of the mature teaching that we find written in your word. Lord, we confess that we are human, that sometimes we react rashly with anger, with frustration. Lord, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that you create a clean heart within us whenever we come to you in repentance and confession. And thank you that you have revealed in your word how to live, to avoid the things that wage war against our soul, to, to do good, to respect the order around us, and most importantly, to trace our lives over the life of Jesus, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. God, we love you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.